You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McLenathan. Wade, would you like me to tell you the story of old left-hand hate and the right hand of love? Oh man, I, I actually would love to hear it, but I feel like I know how it ends already. You know what? It's probably for the best anyway. I don't think that I could possibly measure up to Robert Mitchum's rendition of the old story. So, Well, listeners, today we're going to be leaning on the everlasting arms. We'll be taking a look at Charles Lawton's 1955 masterpiece, The Night of the Hunter. Children. Children. That review's coming up on this episode, episode 288 of seeing and believing. Leaning, leaning, safe and secure from all alarms. Leaning, leaning, leaning on the everlasting What a fellowship, what a joy divine, leaning on the everlasting arms. What a blessedness, what a peace is mine, leaning on the everlasting arms. Shame on you, Ruby, mooning around the house after that mad dog of a man. Ruby, go get the children out of bed and bring them down here. Women are such journal fools. Listeners, we are here with episode 288. I'm not sure if we have Robert Mitchum in the house or Barney in the house, but one of those two characters <laughs> is here today. <laughs> And we should clarify, of course, that you mean Barney, the the friendly dinosaur, yes. right? You know, not yeah. any of the other famous pop culture Barneys. Yeah, yeah, like Barney Fife. That's the that's the Barney that comes to mind. Um, but his his voice is distinct. It's it's different. It's a different distinct though. Um, yeah. So you know, Don Knotts, classic in his own right. So we are looking at. A 1955 picture, The Night of the Hunter. This is a retro review. And Kevin, I think before we jump in, we should probably talk about why we're doing this film. We have a Patreon campaign. It's going right now. We've talked about it for a while. You can hop on over to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. And if you hit a certain mark, a donor level, on our Patreon campaign, and this is a monthly donation, you actually get to choose what film we review on one of our episodes. And you get to choose every single year. So one film, you get to, you get to have it. It could be really anything. And Eric Johnson, one of our patrons, he decided uh, to, to throw us a bone and to give us a really great film to talk about, Kevin. I was so excited when he suggested <laughs> The Night of the Hunter. 
I, it is really nice that Eric Johnson is using his power for good rather than for evil, you know, because we, we are serious. You know, if you pledge at the $10 a month level, you get to pick literally any movie and we will have to review it on the show. That's just kind of <laughs> our our thanks to you for supporting us in that way. And that when we say anything, we do mean anything. So if somebody wants to have us watch The Room or you know, mm. troll two or something, you know, we will, we'll watch it and we will give it an honest review on seeing and believing. So it could have been anything. It's just, I guess our good luck that, uh, Eric chose such a classic as night of the hunter for us instead of something a little bit more, uh, uh, quirky shall we say <laughs> no yeah and listeners you can hop on over to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast if you hit that ten dollar a month mark you can choose one film every single year and i think eric's got something coming down the pipeline a little bit later because we're still kind of working off of 2020 uh, so you can choose a film for us every single year and that's that's really exciting and kevin i was talking to eric and he had this kind of fascinating story as to why he chose this film. He has not actually seen uh, The Night of the Hunter as of the day of this recording. He has not seen the film. He knows that we like the movie because we've talked about it periodically on the podcast, just here and there, how much, how much we think of this film. And he said during COVID, I guess we're kind of still during COVID a little bit, but uh, last year he was doing a movie marathon. He had a couple different marathons that he walked through. One of them was courtroom dramas, and he had a chance to watch Witness for the Prosecution, uh, the 1957 Billy Wilder movie. And in in the lead role for that film, Uh, is a man, of course, by the name of Charles Lawton. And it got him thinking, hey, Charles Lawton actually directed one movie. He directed one film in his career. And it is, of course, The Night of the Hunter. And so he said, I've got to watch it. I'm going to have Seeing and Believing review it so I can watch the movie and listen to the review right afterwards. It'll be kind of his way of pushing himself to see that film pretty pretty quickly. So I thought that was kind of a cool story uh, as we hop into you know this film and we kind of dig into the Night of the Hunter. Yeah, I'm really glad to hear that that's the the background for why he picked this particular film. It's it's exciting, I guess, to be able to not only just talk about this movie but also be part of somebody's maiden voyage with the movie in a way that's a, you know, a a privilege. And so Mm -hmm. thanks so much, Eric, for uh, making us part of that. We hope that you enjoy the film as much as we do. Um, Now, I guess we are kind of laying the cat out of the bag a little bit here, Wade, by saying that we both like this (laughs) film. So it's not going to be, you know, a whole lot of suspense over, oh, are they going to like it? Are they not going to like it? But I do think that there is going to be a lot for us to talk about with this movie simply because it is so there's so much going on in Mm. it. Night of the Hunter is widely regarded as one of the best directorial one-offs in cinema history for a very good reason. Like you said, it was uh, Charles Lawton's first and only film in the director's chair. He never directed another film, partly because of the lukewarm reception that Night of the Hunter received from both audiences and critics. Now, it's received a critical reevaluation since then, and it's 
pretty iconic these days. Robert Mitchum's central role as the villainous preacher Harry Powell is really memorable, and Powell's story of old left-hand hate and the right hand of love (laughs) is one of those touchstones of pop culture that's paid homage and parodied in countless ways by all sorts of other artists and films and television shows. The film's story is memorable as well, of course. Harry Powell has a penchant for wooing widows before robbing them, killing them, and moving on. During a stint in prison, Powell finds out that his soon-to-be-executed cellmate has hidden $10,000 somewhere at home, which marks the cellmate's wife and two children as Powell's next target. So, Wade, you know, we, we both... Uh, have said that we like this film quite a bit. So I'm curious to know, um, I guess just to get us started, uh, this being a rewatch for you, uh, what did you see on this revisit that you found especially striking or that uh, reconfirmed your your opinion of the film? Hmm. Yeah, so I feel like the first time that I watched this movie, this is the second time that I've seen the movie. The first time it was it was more about more about the plot and I, I think the the plot is is really just a crackerjack of a story and we will get into some spoilers so if Eric is listening and he has not watched the movie yet or anybody hasn't seen the film yet we are going to get into some spoilers uh, the plot here is I think is phenomenal it's action-packed it's dramatic uh, there are elements of horror that's involved suspense and that preoccupied my mind during the first viewing and there's some really fascinating turns i think the first time that i watched this movie i expected uh this to be sort of a slow burn drama with harry powell just entering this family uh, the life of this family and the end of the movie would be him revealing his true self. And that would be kind of the climax with the mother and the children. That actually happens before the one hour mark. Then the kids go on the run and this story just deepens and it just really widens. And even the end where we get this this riot scene with the townspeople, it's just, I don't know, this, this movie does a lot of a number of really fascinating things. It makes some some great choices. Second time around, uh, of course, the story still works very well. And it's fascinating just to dig into some of those turns a little bit more. But also, I feel like dig into some of the themes, ideas, and even the, the theological ideas embedded in this movie. And I think that's where I really kind of sat the second time around. And then just you know, I knew the movie was good. I knew the cinematography is good, but just you watch it again and you're just like, wow, this is amazing. I mean, it's just, it's incredible. So I I guess that's where I sat the second time around. Yeah. So this was also my second time with the film. And the first time I saw, uh, you know, I, I liked it okay, but I think it took me a while to warm up to the approach that Lawton takes with this material, because really the way that this, the the way he directs this film, the way it's pitched, is basically as kind of a fairy tale, sort of a Grimm's fairy tale, I guess. If you could transplant uh, the Brothers Grimm to Depression era, the American South in the Depression, 
uh, you would get something a lot like this. And the first time I saw this film, I was kind of, I, I had trouble uh, adjusting to that that tenor of the film it's just there are parts of it that seemed a little bit broad to me and just i didn't fully click with it until i'd had some time to sit with it and then i you know i decided that you know i actually did admire it quite a bit but i just i you know it took a bit of getting used to on the second time around i maybe because i knew what i was getting into a little bit more i was just able to really click into it right away and what really struck me on this viewing is just what a what a fascinating distinctive strange movie this is i really like how it it works almost on the level of a dream and that's you know owing of course to the fact that it is basically a fairy tale and fairy tales kind of do often work on that level where they have their own logic and they're kind of for kids but they also have the potential to have lots of darkness and uh deep resonances in ways that are you know definitely not necessarily uh kitty fair but yet it's it's also aimed toward pitched at that kind of level and just it's a fascinating tightrope to walk and it's a difficult tightrope to walk too it sounds easy like oh a fairy tale how hard can it be to tell such a simple story but to actually pull it off in the way that lawton does here is really impressive and uh watching it now uh i was able to appreciate all the the ways that he uses cinematic uses the cinematic form to to achieve that it's not just simply on the level of the screenplay or or the storytelling lawton really does marshal all the the powers he can with the with the camera with the lighting the cinematography here by um stanley cortez who also you know worked with uh you know orson wells to name just one he's shot a lot of films both uh you know the the artsy to the uh kind of the b pictures but cortez's work with light and shadow in this really just goes a long way toward enhancing the feeling that hey it's almost like we're we're in a dream and we just kind of follow the dream wherever it goes and it goes to some some interesting unusual places but it's just it's there's a reason i guess that it's so it's endured as long as it has this is a really memorable cinematic experience yeah and you you mentioned the the dreamlike quality of the film there are scenes with fog that definitely reinforce that point the use of shadow and silhouette to reinforce that point and I guess what also struck me on this the second watch is the use of music. There are some pretty creepy songs in the film. And the movie opens up with uh, a children's choir. And they're singing, Dream, My Little One, Dream. And then later on, uh, a number of children uh, sing this hanging song to make fun of the, the two siblings after their dad is uh is hung for for murder and then of course leaning on the everlasting arms it just feels haunting almost out of body in in a sense which is which is just kind of just fascinating the use of these songs that with the exception of the hanging song that would normally be uplifting and inspirational are twisted upside down 
And, and then in addition, some of these shots and the production design and the compositions make the sets feel like passageways. And that's done with hallways. I, I think probably the standout one in terms of a passageway would be as the children are taking uh, Harry down the stairs into the basement. And it's as if below and above the stairs are completely black and they are they're descending into into darkness. And we get that kind of throughout the film. This is one of those movies where trauma is fully visualized. Uh, that there is this descent, this examination of of just of pure evil. And there's there's no doubt that this character, Harry, is evil. And I love that because at the beginning of the movie, he we see the body of a woman he killed. And it's not this, well, could he be good? Could he be get bad? What is he capable of? We already know that at the start of this film. And it just, I think, enhances the quality of this story and the mystery and and you know the overall suspense. Yeah, we're we're going to probably come back to your point about uh, the evil of Harry Powell and the way this film treats it because I think you're you're right, but I think the, the way that uh, the way that that view of his character interacts with the the point of view of the children in this film is really fascinating there's just so much to say about that but getting back to the the visuals you're right that there are just some really striking images watching it this time i was struck by that how that basement scene really uh you you kind of when when you watch Night of the Living Dead, you know George Romero's uh, zombie movie, and there's you know the, that famous scene with the uh, the little girl who uh, zombifies in the basement of the house in that film. Uh, I was watching. I was like, I was watching this, and I was thinking, man, I I never noticed how Romero. It, it's all he. How much he. I don't know if he intentionally pulled inspiration from this scene, but it's definitely there. Just the the pitch black shadows, the the slants of light, the way that Harry Powell chases the children up the stairs like a zombie with his arms, you know, completely outstretched. It's just it is kind of the stuff of of nightmares, and it's it's all the more striking for that. There are other places where. Um, uh, Lawton really makes great use of silhouette, and there are certain shots that almost look like a shadow play, like those you know those puppet shows where there's you know there the puppeteers are behind a sheet and there's a light behind them, so that if you're watching it in the audience, you're just seeing the shadows that the puppets are casting on this sheet, and just that again makes it feel like it gives it that that fairy tale quality, and it also allows Lawton to imbue. Harry Powell with a menace that is difficult to define but is really effective. You see these these shots of Powell cresting over a hill and he's backlit and the children are trying to get away from him as he's just, you know, we just see him backlit and he doesn't, you know, he's not saying anything particularly scary. He's just coming for them and just seeing that shadow do that is is just it's indelible and you you see every, everything from you know the the ring wraiths and it he that that was something that really struck me this time is just the the shots of harry powell riding a horse along the horizon silhouetted against it and the little boy even asks himself doesn't he ever sleep and it's just it's 
you have to wonder if Peter Jackson drew from this film when kind of deciding how he wanted the ring wraiths to feel. And again, that's just, that's how you know you're kind of in the presence of a singular piece of art is just that it feels like, oh, it had to have always existed because all these other artists pull from it. But yet, you know, Lawton and, and Lawton himself was obviously really influenced by I think of like the silent films of F.W. Murnau, like Nosferatu or or Sunrise, where you get that fog creeping along the ground or the famous shot of Nosferatu ascending the stairs. Like that's all in this film's DNA. And yet Lawton does something with it that is very much his. And that, I don't know, that's really impressive. Yeah. And there are a couple of shots that stuck out to me as well. And this will kind of go along with the I guess the theological conversation we'll have about the movie, I guess we can just kind of jump into that. Um, But one of my favorite shots in the film is when Harry is in the bedroom with his wife, and this is the scene where he he kills her. And she is uh, laying down in bed. He's standing up and he's looking out the window. This light is kind of bursting in and... The ceiling um, makes a point, and so all around the outside of that point is is black, and it looks like the outside of a church or a cathedral. And later on in the movie, we we get that shot in the children's room when they're actually being protected from Harry. We get a similar shot with the shadows, and oh, I can post this on. On our, on our Twitter feed or my Twitter feed. And it reinforces these theological ideas and really the motivation behind Harry's character. He believes he has this divine right to do what he's doing. And throughout this, the movie, we hear about Pharaoh uh, and, and him killing young children we hear about Herod and him killing young ch- children. Those stories are told. And this individual is one of those characters who believes that they have this supernatural divine right or power. And as a result, they are free to do whatever they'd like to do. And what what happens, right? Uh, it hurts women and, and children. And that plays out throughout the movie, really with everyone that he interacts with. And when we get that fantastic scene where he's on the porch and and Rachel Cooper, her character, uh, is, is watching him with a gun and he starts singing, leaning on the everlasting arms, he's taking this song about dependence on God and he's twisting it as if to say either, my arms are everlasting or those everlasting arms have given me this right to do whatever I please. And then the character of Rachel Cooper begins to sing leaning on Jesus, rightly really interpreting that song to say, no, it's a dependence on Christ versus our own selves. And I just find that dynamic fascinating. And in some ways it reminds me of themes that we see in Martin Scorsese's films. 
these characters who take on the mantle of divinity and really just kind of tear apart their lives and the lives of the people around them. Uh, and that's, that's really what happens here in The Night of the Hunter. Yeah. Okay. So we, we need to talk about this because I think this is one of the most interesting aspects of the film is the question, is Harry Powell, is he a true believer or is he merely cynically using the forms of faith in order to go on his rampage? And I'm not sure what the answer to that question is because I can kind of see it going both ways. On the one hand, we do get that that opening, it's not the opening scene, but it's an early scene where he's driving in a car by himself and he's talking to God. So it does seem like on one hand, his belief is sincere, but then you get these other scenes where he is literally, he's he's lying through his teeth to somebody else and he's using scripture uh He's employing it in a way just as a just as a way to sort of uh, get their defenses down and to really get his own way. And I think it's it's fascinating to kind of experience that tension where you wonder, okay, is he is he some sort of true believer in his own twisted religion, or does he kind of just use the forms of religion as a way to get what he wants? And he just is a very good performer of those forms and i i'm not entirely sure i'm inclined to say that he is a true believer in some sense but it it's an interesting the the needle i guess that robert mitchum threads is is really fascinating to watch because he plays harry powell in a way where powell is he's very he's got layers to him he's not He's not a simple character. He's very complex, and yet we never fully see behind the veil of the performance. We don't really get um, too many moments of Harry Powell unguarded. He's always uh, performing for the benefit of other characters or trying to put on a show to intimidate somebody. And either way, we're not really getting a sense that are we seeing like the the quote unquote the real Harry Powell here. It's a little bit unclear and i love that scene that you mentioned where uh lillian gish's rachel cooper is you know guarding the children against uh powell as he's kind of out in the front yard kind of waiting for them in in the dead of night and they're singing and the way that lawton films that scene it becomes a duet like their their voices weave together they're singing counterpoint to each other and it's almost like in that scene we kind of have a microcosm of what faith can be it can either be uh something that a a wolf in sheep's clothing employs to harm and destroy or it can be uh something that provides security and protection and hope and that's something that's done entirely through this 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 scene of song and it's not something that lawton even feels the need to put a button on and that's just how confident his directing here is it's it is interesting too how harry's character talks about he has this uh he's worn this crown of thorns to take care of the children uh he talks about how him and god cooks up uh they cooked up a plan and i think the i think the key though in terms of the film's moral compass or or maybe just within this, I guess this interpretation of faith comes at the beginning 
and the beginning has uh, the the character of of Rachel and uh, Lillian Gish. She is there uh, talking or teaching the group of children and speaking about false prophets. And she's quoting from the Bible. And what's behind her? She's sort of silhouetted in these stars. And I, I think what the film is saying is, is, you know, she exhibits the Beatitudes. She will inherit the earth or inherit the kingdom of God. And we get to kind of visually see that at the beginning. And then we're suddenly taken to the, the depths of the earth with that first murder. So the film essentially says, hey, there's this purity of faith and, and Cooper's character follows that. Um, but I love what you're saying about, you know, Powell, is he a true believer? Does he believe what he's saying? I think he does believe it. I think he really does genuinely believe that he is right. But it's this, as I mentioned before, this individualized faith where faith is here to kind of prop my desires up uh, versus the desires of Christ, um, the plan of Christ. And it's fascinating how the film kind of goes about just walking us through that, just that image. He's definitely a true believer in something, right? I mean, the, the question is, is that is that true belief? Is it religious in nature or is there something else going on? Lawton does this interesting thing where he, he almost makes uh harry powell's driving motivation not his own twisted form of faith but this this compulsion to to punish women there's a deep strain of misogyny that runs through his character and it seems like that's kind of the the involuntary thing for him like when he's when he's speaking to a young woman late in the film you know she says she's kind of flirting with him and she's trying to get him to tell her she's pretty and you hear kind of the click of the switchblade in his pocket it's almost like it's it's a reflex in him he can't help the the fact that this there's this attraction that this young woman is is trying to exert in that moment and he feels an almost involuntary revulsion towards that and it feels almost like he kind of cobbles together everything else in his life around that weird uh pathology and it's just again though it's such an interesting the the way that that's kind of built over time and developed is done so deftly that you don't necessarily have to read the film that way for it to still be intelligible as a commentary on faith. But the fact that Lawton kind of doesn't either turn Powell into a zealot or on one hand or a mealy-mouthed hypocrite on the other is is really fascinating. Again, it kind of it walks that sort of tightrope that it walks as as kind of this dark fairy tale. It's it's totally fascinating. Uh, you know what I also liked, and it, I think you mentioned this at the beginning of the review. That this is kind of a weird film. It it it, it does. It feels very unique. I love the uh, the use of animals in the picture. Uh, animals just kind of pop up everywhere, and there's a great sequence with a number of animals as the children are floating down the river, and it it definitely projects this very tranquil nature other times we feel like just like animals are at the mercy of their environment these children are at the mercy of predators uh and then when harry's character kind of a, 
appears, we do get this this eagle at one place, uh, this 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 predator who's on the prowl at night to uh, to eat and to feed. And I just love I just love those little touches. And and you know we can dissect them kind of like I did. Well, they represent this, this, and this. But there's just this feeling that he invokes with with those touches, with the with the animals, and with some of these other inclusions. You, you can dissect it, but it just it makes you feel a certain way. And uh, it just you know all these pieces come together and just it works. I, I mean I think it's a masterpiece. I think it's this is a this is a phenomenal movie. It's it's really great. I mean, really, I can imagine a version of this film with no dialogue whatsoever. I mean, certain certainly there there might be intertitles every now and then to to let us know, you know, what a, the specifics of what a character is saying. But if you think of this film where all of the dialogue is is just removed and we are kind of carried through the story on the basis of the actor's gestures, their physical performance, the the way that Lawton shoots everything, I don't really think you would lose all that much. It's just it works on such a powerful level on on just an on the level of images that you you really that's all you need. And those, you know, the the imagery of the the trip down river with you know the shot of the of the toad and of the the rabbits, all of those things really it it, it transports you to a certain place where you are prepared to receive the film on its own terms. And again, that's that's no no small feat. I really want to talk about the uh, the children in this movie. So we haven't really talked about them very much, and yet they are kind of what opens the movie. The, the film opens with Lillian Gish essentially, you know, looking straight into the into the camera, but um, through an edit, we kind of see that it's framed that she's telling a story to children. It's basically it takes the the tenor of sort of a bedtime story. She talks about you know wolves and sheep's clothing, and um, we're prepared to enter into this this world that the film is creating. But Lawton does something really interesting with two mirrored shots at the beginning and at the end of this picture. So at the beginning of the movie, uh, we see uh, the 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 boy and girl's father, the the criminal who hides the $10,000. Uh, we see him be arrested, and, and arrested pretty violently. And Lawton shoots the uh, the young boy. He kind of holds his hands to his stomach as if he's, he's sick, and he, he just plaintively says, no, don't stop, as his father is, you know, wrestled into handcuffs and taken away from him. And that same shot and the same line delivery and everything is mirrored when Harry Powell receives his comeuppance at the hands of the law. And that's a really, uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating way for, for Lawton to suggest the essential innocence of the children in this picture. You know, it's not a rah-rah get a moment when Harry Powell is arrested. It's, it's a scene where the violence is the, is the same, and even the little boy he's been victimizing and chasing for the entire film wants it all to stop. And I, I think that Lawton is really kind of suggesting through through that and through other uh, techniques throughout the movie that, that you know children are perfectly innocent in this film, um, and it's that innocence that enables them to show mercy in ways that are completely inaccessible to adults and an adult who is 
treated in the way that Harry Powell treats these children would be very happy to see him led away in shackles at the end, or would be very, wouldn't be sorry necessarily to see the mob outside the jailhouse, you know, know, baying for his blood, basically. But with Lawton, he presents us through the eyes of children who who don't want that, who in in some ways do want this horrible (laughs) psychopath to receive just a little bit of mercy. And that's, I think, maybe what elevates this from just an in, an interesting movie to a borderline masterpiece is that Lawton suggests that, and, and it the story is richer for it. It's not cloying or sentimental, although it easily could be. It's a bit of wisdom, I guess, that he provides to us through, through moments like those. Mm. Yeah, well, I was struck by... Billy Chapin, uh, who plays the young boy here, and he, he he reminds me of Ryan Gosling. It just is this his dad or what? <laughs> I kept thinking of that throughout the film. Child actor who only worked a handful of years after this picture and then didn't do anything again, and he's really wonderful here. And that scene at the end where he is, he's in the the courtroom and he does not testify against the preacher and instead he just wants he just wants the violence to be done and what happens the the townspeople become extremely violent and there's this this you know huge riot and at the end of the film it's it's very clear that the young boy has experienced deep trauma but his act of mercy as well as the, the mercy and, and the grace and the compassion that, that's given to him by uh, the character of, of Rachel, uh, we know he's going to be okay, that things are going to be fine, that she is pure in heart, and that her faith will, will bring him through this. And it's just a nice touch uh, to the film and just wraps things up I think I think beautifully while also not not taking away from the horror that we see at the beginning of the movie well, throughout the film and it, it just it really is a wonderful characterization and a wonderful a wonderful performance. Yeah, in a way the you could almost make the case that this film is suggesting that it's it's that impulse toward mercy that that saves this little boy. Like he, there's there's a way in which him not wanting to see uh, his tormentor punished savagely um, keeps him. Like it, it makes sure that Powell no longer really has power over him, and that's in a way it's, it's a profoundly Christian uh, outlook that that uh, we. We are to extend mercy, not necessarily because you know that it's virtuous and we just sort of have to grit our teeth and do it, but because that's the path to, towards human flourishing, not just for the person who's being shown mercy, but also per, for the person who is showing it themselves. And uh, again, it's just such a striking uh, message to to see in a movie like this. It could have easily, you know, it it, it didn't have to be in there, I guess. And mm. it's sad that. Lawton didn't direct any more films oh, because just his ability to draw out such richness out of uh, this story is is really remarkable. And uh, 
critics and audiences back then, what were you thinking? <laughs> <laughs> well, we were trying to figure out, is there a movie that one of us have have liked that a lot of people didn't like? And could it could it change? Could the perception be changed over the years? The, the movie that I feel like I, I, in terms of me liking it, a lot of people not liking it, I, I liked... Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Now, I don't think it's going to become this movie, but that's just a good example of something that I'm like, I really like, and a lot of people are like, I absolutely hate this movie. I'm trying to think of, there, there are other films that I liked, some people were cold on, um, but that one kind of comes to mind. Kevin, is there anything for you that you would say, I really like this, a lot of people didn't, maybe it could become bigger here in the coming decades? Oh, man. I'm kind of putting I, I, you on the spot, so. Well, we talked about this a little bit before the show, and I, I've i been thinking, kind of like mulling that over in the back of my head as we've been discussing this. And I, I don't know. I, I don't know if this means that my taste is just kind of conventional, but I can't really think of a movie that I've sort of defended against all comers in a, in a way that uh, would feel like it's an appropriate answer to this question like the jurassic world fallen kingdom who knows maybe in 50 years wade mm. it's going to get that critical reevaluation <laughs> and people are going to be wondering what was going through everyone's minds that they didn't see what a masterpiece it was <laughs> uh i'm not really sure that i you know something like that really comes to mind for me the you know uh, there are there are some films that i really like that I feel like don't get a whole lot of attention, but I don't think there are too many where I, I just love this film that everybody else actively dislikes or thinks is is mediocre. It's just uh, not something that, that comes up for me all that often. Yeah, yeah. Well, who knows? I mean, maybe we just get it right all the time. And maybe yeah, maybe that's yeah. what happens. Listeners, I choose to believe that. <laughs> no, it's true. Listeners, that is our review of The Night of the Hunter. Thanks, Eric Johnson, for supporting us. Thank you for choosing. Also, a good film to review. Listeners, if you have any thoughts, make sure to shoot us an email. Seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Once again, that's seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Or you can tweet us, seebeliefpod see belief pod we're also doing something kind of fun with our patreon supporters we're doing an oscar an academy award competition and all of us are submitting our picks what categories what films what performers do we think are going to win take home the trophy and the individual with the most points at the end of the night will receive a ten dollar gift card so if you support us on Patreon, go ahead and hop on over there. Get that turned in. Take a picture with <laughs> you take a picture with today's newspaper, so we know that you filled it out on time. And uh, we're gonna give away a gift card to a winner. But it is the end of the show, Kevin. It's that point where we recommend something from the world of television and/or film to our listeners. What would you like to recommend to our listeners today? Uh, well, so I had some pretty good news recently up here in Chicago. They they just opened up the, the COVID vaccines to everybody over the age of 16, which means that at long last, I can finally hey. make my appointment to get vaccinated, which means that a return to theater going, like mm. seeing movies in the movie theater is on the horizon for me. That's something I've been without for uh, 
over a year at this point. I've missed it so much. And uh, recently I was seeing that uh, the Music Box Theater here in Chicago, which is, you know, probably my favorite Chicago institution. I just, I love going there. I love the history behind it. They have just a fantastic staff, both, you know, man, from every, manning everything from concessions to the projector, projector booth to making programming decisions, just great across the board. And I recently discovered that they're going to be showing Michael Mann's Heat, the 1995 Cops and Robbers movie. Mm. Um, they're going to be showing that around the same time that I will be getting my second shot uh, for the vaccination. Okay. And I can't think of a better way to make a triumphant return to seeing movies in the theater than seeing Heat on the big screen yeah. for the very first time. I'm super excited about it. And that's my recommendation, I guess, for this week. If anyone who hasn't seen Heat or you know maybe has seen it but hasn't revisited it in a while, I would recommend checking it out and just letting yourself be caught up in it again. I think it's just me arguably one of the best films of the 90s certainly one of the best genre films of the 90s it's so good and uh yeah i'm i'm as you can tell i'm pretty jazzed about getting the chance to see it on on the big screen for the first time yeah that's my recommendation for this week oh man that sounds great I, i haven't seen the film on the big screen but that just that would be an amazing experience. So yeah, that's that's great. Congratulations. Uh, my recommendation is a film that a buddy of mine has been talking about for a really long time. Uh, he's been on the show, Blake Collier. Uh, his favorite movie of all time is Gross Point Blank, the 1997 film from George Armitage. Wait, how do you pronounce it? George Armit- Armitage? George- Probably George Armitage. Okay, George Armitage. The 1997 film from George Armitage, and he, Blake, even has a podcast where he's breaking down that movie bit by bit. It's called So Gross, Such Point, Much Blank. And I've been wanting to listen to the podcast, but I'm like, oh, I haven't seen the movie. I did have a chance to get it from the library, and it's a lot of fun. It is a weird Movie. I guess you just kind of expect it to be a traditional action comedy. It's it's much better than that. It's funny. It's strange. It's brazen. And I think that oh, I, I think that John Cusack just does a fantastic job. Mm. Many drivers good. Dan Aykroyd is really funny as this rival assassin. So the story goes that uh, John Cusack is an assassin. He's a murder for hire. He goes back to his hometown for a 10-year high school reunion. And he's also got a job there. He's supposed to kill someone. Uh, He meets the individual that he left 10 years ago, a woman that he's in love with, and uh, mayhem ensues. And it's it really is a lot of fun. It is weird to think about, though, because the soundtrack, it's a really good soundtrack. It's all movies from that time period, the late 80s. So this is set in 96, 10-year reunion. So it's all from about 1986, um, the, the music that they listened to in high school. And I was like, man, if they made this movie today... It, we'd be hearing tunes from 2011. Just be a weird experience. Oh, um, yeah, but I like the movie a lot. Uh, gross point blank. Check it out and then go check out Blake Collier's podcast. Yeah, and that is, I, I can wholeheartedly second your uh, endorsement of that movie. It's 
it's so interesting watching John Cusack, who's kind of, he's he just has this career that was based on basically being kind of an everyman, usually a likable everyman, but at least an everyman, and kind of taking that persona and inserting it into a movie where he's this amoral kind of cold-blooded killer but kind of playing it the way john cusack would like a john cusack version of an amoral cold-blooded hitman is just it's a really fascinating mixture and i don't know whoever whatever casting director actually got that all put together uh deserves an award i should probably listen to blake's podcast so i can actually learn who that was whose idea it was because yeah, it's kind of a lightning in a bottle sort of sort of experience watching it. Oh yeah, yeah, I had I had a really good time, listeners. That's all we got today. Make sure to tweet us at cbeliefpod or email us seeing and believing capc at gmail.com if you have any comments. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. It's brought to you by ChristandPopCulture.com. Our producer, as always, is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. My co-host is Kevin McLenathan, and until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. We'll see you later. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes, and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz. Used under Creative Commons License 3.0.